Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other interesting fields of endeavors. You won't find most of them anywhere else on the radio. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, our head brewer, Maria Cabre. Hola, Maria. Hola. It's fall, and in much of the country, the air is turning crisp. The trees are exploding with fall colors, and harvest season is well underway. It's a busy time of the year for our first guest, a brother and sister duo, originally from Baltimore, Maryland, who have created two of the country's most acclaimed cider brands, Graft and Hudson North Cider Company. Their guiding principle has been to respect the old world traditions of cider while incorporating modern brewing techniques. The unique flavor profiles of their innovative styles have gained them national acclaim, including Food and Wine Magazine, which said last year that Graft may be the most innovative producer on the market. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Kyle and Sarah Scherer. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for having us here. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for both joining us on the uh, the show today. Uh, we're here joined by my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, how are you? So before we get into all the exciting things that you guys are up to now, um, we kind of want to go back and, and travel back to the beginning. Uh, your dad, Kurt, bought a dilapidated 19th century grist mill in Moncton uh, community in northern Baltimore, county maryland he renovated the space for 10 years and was trying to figure out what to use it for it was you kyle who suggested turning it into a cidery where did that idea to open a cidery come from and how much convincing did it take you to uh, actually to, to pull that off yeah it it was it was an interesting starting place i was in college at the time um you know was was, was interested in you know starting something it was actually more interested in like the tech world at the time and you know, someone sat me down back in the day and they're like, well, you need one of two things. You either need the know-how or you need the money. Um, and I didn't really have any of those things when it came to tech. So my dad, you know, had, had gone to UC Davis for viticulture and winemaker in the uh, mid-Atlantic area. And with this old, with this old grist mill, like, you know, I, he was like, oh, I want to do historic, you know, he was thinking about historic beverages and stuff like that. And I just, right around that time was when cider was really starting to take off in the UK. And you were starting to see that kind of Passover into the US. This is when like Crispin was a cool brand. I remember I was like, I remember that. Yep. Absolutely. Cool stuff. And now they're like the worst brand of all time. But that shows you what time, you know, time kind of kills all brands or kills a lot of brands, unfortunately. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, Yeah. Uh, So, you know, didn't have a whole lot of uh, insight into the craft scene. Uh, we, we thought a little more like we were going to go after the, you know, the wine market with the with cider, and but we started making it in a more historic way, using more natural processes, and you know, unknown to me, like you know, I was out there peddling it, um, you know, trying to focus on local ingredients, sourcing the 150 miles, kind of taking like this hybrid, um, kind of like farm to table meats, agricultural fermented product uh, concept. And caught the eye of a lot of really great craft beer bars in D.C. Um, who were really focused on their sour beer program. And that was kind of like the aha moment when we we're like, well, this is more similar to a sour beer than to, um, to like, you know, traditional sweet cider. And we were already going to go in like down the dry path. But, you know, it's not like wine. It's more like sour beer. What's this all about? And then we started, we were already kind of looking into European style ciders, but that was really kind of, I guess, the turning point where we were like, we need to start investigating what Europe's doing because there's a lot of these flavor profiles that we see in sour beer. How can we take that? And, you know, this time, this is when, like, super sour beers are popular, like the brewery, Tarted Darkness, um, all those, like, over-the-top, super sour things are happening. So, you know, we were, we were like, in kind of this perfect storm place um, to make different unique styles of, like, ciders. We did a little bit of dabbling into meads and sizers as well, using local agricultural products, wild yeast, wild bacteria, fermenting and every aging everything in oak barrels. So when we started, we had about 30 oak barrels. By the time we finished, we had about 500. 
and everything was fermented and aged in oak wow. and then blended individually using different varietals per in different barrels to make the, the, the varietal blend. Okay. Hey, and, and Sarah, have you been involved in the family business from the beginning or when did you jump in? Yeah. So when my brother and my dad started Millstone in 2011, I was still in college for the next year, year and a half. Um, but knew at that time that they had started this and after college knew that I wanted to come on. And so my involvement was very little. Like I literally was just like the resident waxer and labeler. And that's literally what I did. I employed (laughs) all my friends and we literally would just wax and label bottles for nine hours a day. And then slowly (laughs) it evolved into doing more production, more front of the housework. And that's where I really found my love for this industry is working with people, helping to build a brand, um, and just really loving to connect with the customer. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. 2013 on, I've been part of this process. So what became of uh, Millstone Cellars in Maryland? And when did you guys start Graft and eventually set up shop in, in Newburgh, New York? Yeah, so while we were kind of, you know, Working on Millstone, you know, we had slowly expanded our distribution footprint um, to about eight, I believe, eight states at the time. And we were really doing well in New York City. Um, and that's when we developed a relationship with the Sheehan Distribution Group, which I know you're aware of. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> good, good, good and bad things come with any distribution group, but it did give us, you know, I, I think a leg up. Um, and we got, you know, in front of a lot of like really cool bars at the time and access to really, um, you know, cool events and stuff like that up there. So that kind of like spurred them to kind of start talking about like, well, you know, if you get this into a can, we could see a lot more kind of happen with this. And I, and I knew Milson wasn't the right product for that at the time. It was a little too acidic, a little too sour, hard to drink, you know, like more than one can of really half a can um, at the time. So started and, and, you know, me and my father, you know, butted heads a little bit as the business developed. So I was like, well, you know what? Maybe it's time we start looking elsewhere, um, doing something a little more modern um, that kind of combines both, the you know, the European way of making cider, but then this new wave of craft beer, which, I, you know, at the time, I think I was riding around talking about Millstone when um, Haterade was coming to market for the first time. And everyone was like, so <laughs> right, exactly. about Haterade coming yeah. to the market, so... You know, it was like this this weird timing. So, you know, at, at some point, you know, things kind of broke down between me and my father, and that just was the time when it was like, all right, I'm going to take all my time and, and effort and just focus on graft. And it took about – I was in my apartment for about six months by myself. You know, Sarah was coming by. We were working on different test batches, starting to develop, like, where we are going to launch the, the brand and all that, and eventually found a spot, moved up, and, you know, while kind of just, like – testing out and trialing and doing all this stuff, just kind of got up into Newburgh, which is in the Hudson Valley and came up in May of 2016 and started selling our first product in um, late October 31st, Halloween. That was the first time we shipped our product. So a little bit different from the beer process where it takes far, far more time from start to finish. There's no real hot side with cider. So, you know, we use third parties to press our juice. It comes in and we ferment it. Not nearly as much setup, um, and we've kind of just grown and grown and grown the business and refined and gotten, you know, better machines, gotten centrifuges, gotten Velcro, and gotten different things to make the process um, and, and elevate kind of the quality that we could bring to the table um, from from the very beginning, which was okay. very, uh, you know, we didn't even we didn't have jacketed you know tanks. We right. we literally were a keg conditioning and bottle conditioning everything. Right, um, and then when the canning line showed up that's when we had to get, you know, we, we, we were, we had the jacket tanks coming from the canyon line showed up and back in the day, like you couldn't get iron hard or a lot of these other mobile canners to do cider products. Right. So yep. multiple people were like, you know, people, my, my investors, which is family were like, do you need this really expensive canyon? I said, if we don't get a canning line, the business model does not work. Like it just doesn't work. So Eventually, you know, through, <laughs> through begging, pleading, and just, you know, having really understanding uh, people around me, was able to get everything off the ground and that, get everything started. That's awesome. And that's when me and Sarah kind of hit the ground running. Do you mind explaining for, for our listeners out there, can you tell us about the process of making hard cider? Like many people think that it's brewed like craft beer, 
how is the process similar and different than making craft beer? That you, what would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the amount of people that are like, oh, can I come to your brewery or can I come to your distillery? Well, it's neither of those processes. It's more of like a winery than anything else. So while with beer, you got to get the grain, the malt, uh, the hops, all these different ingredients. Cider in, in ways is much simpler. You're really just bringing the apple juice in um, and then adding nutrients, yeast, all that kind of stuff. If you're doing a more traditional cider. Now we do kind of a hybrid model. We start, we start doing a hundred percent spontaneous, but had to kind of change a little bit as we, as we moved along. So we bring in our cider um, when it comes in, it's, it's unpasteurized, it's untouched, no sorbates or any sort of stabilizing agents are added. We then um, let the uh, spontaneous fermentation start for the first three days as everything warms up. Then we pitch a wine yeast, um, but don't add anything to inhibit the, uh, the native yeast or bacteria. And then after about um, a week and a half of fermentation, the sugar is almost down to zero and cider naturally gets a heck of a lot drier than beer because it's a very simple product. It's all sugars and acids. There's right. no really like long change proteins, um, you know, nothing that nothing that's like hard to ferment really. So it just eats through everything. And then the uh, native bacteria goes through a malolactic fermentation. And for those that don't know what that is, the easiest way to explain it is, Apple acid is, is malic acid is like Granny Smith apples. It's extremely tart. Um, you know, it's, it's unyielding. It's, it's, it's a lot to take in if it's fully dry, but if you allow the cider to go through a malolactic fermentation, it converts that malic acid into lactic acid, which um, is a much softer acid um, and raises the overall pH of the product. So it's a lot easier to drink a drier product. And that being said, you, you can't have it just exist as a lactic acid cider because then it's flabby and really just completely uninteresting. So we allow, again, the, that native bacteria to uh, insert a little bit of acetic acid, and that's where you get the balance between the lactic and the acetic. And it's a fine line and a fine kind of tightrope to walk, um, which is why after we get to a good point, we then sulfite and stabilize, which is something that we started doing in the last two years because, you know, we ship our stuff all over right, I mean, you you know, have- the U.S. and the world, and it just... Right. You have to have, you, you have to have shelf stable product. I mean, if so, by introducing the sulfides and everything, you're actually halting the process of those yeast going any further than what they would. So then becoming a shelf stable product at that point, which is, that's awesome to hear. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear about the malolactic fermentation. I mean, we do a lot of lactic fermentation here with our yeah. house culture of, uh, lactobacillus. But it was, it's always interesting, you know, to hear other sides of different industries and how they handle their fermentations. I'm sure it would put a lot of people to sleep, but <laughs> I find it interesting. I was going to say um, we're, we're turning into a uh, science, uh, no, a chemistry. No, but it's great, though. I think it's, ama- I think it's amazing. Um, but what else beyond introducing those, the native cultures and producing your cider this way? I mean, are you guys also adding other flavors and other ingredients, other fruits as well? Yeah, so once we have our base, um, the, almost all of our ciders are derived from the same base. And then we take inspiration from, you know, uh, A, we started with a lot of craft beer inspiration, um, and we're doing styles all over the map. At the end of the day, back when we were starting, like most ciders, it was either sweet or dry or like it was the name of a fruit. Like here's our blueberry cider, here's our peach cider. Right. And you looked at the world of beer and there was, you know, hundred plus styles and I'm like, well, why doesn't cider start developing this? Like this is our opportunity to do something really unique and kind of make our, you know, make our mark on the world. So um, we, we started like saying, you know, screw, screw tradition. We're going to make styles of cider and just, you know, people accept them. They accept them. They don't, they don't. So we had those of styles, um, different like hop, like hop mimosa styles, like trying to find words that would entice people on a menu um, you know, like we just came out with our new meat series and we were trying to find something cool and interesting. So one of my guys was like, we should use, we should try Kaviki. So I'm like, Kaviki sounds awesome. I'm like, we, you know, we can do this Nordic meat, meat series. So like taking like inspiration for maybe like some of the Nordic, um, orange, like, uh, restaurants like Noma or something like that. And, you know, somewhere between like this weird, like forage product and mead, like berry mead meats, like an Amaro. Um, so it's all about like, a cider is a weird kind of lives by its lives in its own corner, but that allows us to kind of approach it in a way without anyone saying, well, that's, you know, this is how it should be done. And to be fair, there is the Paris community. 
and they're very much like just apples. So, you know, they don't I, like us. I mean, there, I mean, there, there's always a purist community, even in the beer community. I mean, people, True. I mean, come by and, you know, they're like, hey, don't you just make beer that tastes like beer? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, I mean, there are purists in, in any form in, it, in the industry. So, I mean, it, they're out there for sure. Yeah. You're listening to the Beer Hour. We're talking to siblings Kyle and Sarah of Graft Cider. So you brought up the mead. So you, you have an umbrella company now called Backpack Brands, under which you have yeah. Graft, Hudson North, and Flora Wines. Can you give us a brief description of, of each of those brands that you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the nice things is, is we've kind of grown as, as a cidery from kind of a small startup to like, you know, uh, maybe a small regional cidery is we've able to, you know, you're able to get better equipment to make more consistent product and make a wider range of products. So we, we hold a winery license um, and that allows us to make graft, which is what we like to call sour cider, wild yeast bacteria, um, crazy flavor combos that kind of riff on the beer world, you know, cocktail world, different, different uh, fermented foods. And then we have Hudson North, which is a more, you know, back to the basics, hazy, dry, dry-ish cider. It's more like on the dry side of sweet, I like to say. Um, focused around, you know, being able to supply a good, well-branded, flavorful, and I think uh, a cider with integrity to kind of the local New York and surrounding kind of states market. That one also has a mission to it. So we uh, work with a couple of different um, trail organizations. Sarah's really involved with the community aspect of that. Um, working with, um, you know, uh, New York, New Jersey trails um, where we give back for every gallon we sell. Plus we put together, uh, you know, um, events we're called taps for trails where every pint gives a dollar back to the trails. And now we're working on developing more and more relationships in our area. So I think for a sweeter side of brand, getting really involved in your local community um, to build long-term ties to be that local brand has been important. And then, Flora Wines was really spearheaded by Sarah. And that was a wine spritzer brand. And we had to put it on hiatus for a little bit because of can supply. Um, but it's really just like a wine seltzer, like a wine made product. You know, like if you like seltzers, here's something made from wine and with real fruit. When we use California wine grapes, the base, really refreshing, low sugar, something kind of away from those, those like barefoot seltzers that are extremely sweet. Oh, you know, yes. The, you know, <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> Yeah, all those, all those, uh, you know, I guess wine in the cans that have kind of been the plague of, you know, sophisticated wine drinking for, for everyone, you know, Franzia and all that stuff. Um, and then we also have, uh, we're about to launch um, Ritual Hard Kombucha, oh. which is, so we just got a brewery license. Oh, okay. My, my, my thing is we'll never make beer. I, I never want to make, <laughs> that's not my interest at all. Um, dealing with grain and all that stuff in a gluten-free facility. Right, exactly. Absolutely. But to have freedom of fermentation, you really have to go with a brewery license because cider and wine is extremely restrictive. Like, as soon as you add another fruit, it changes the tax class. And now if you add a little bit of carbonation to that, it's going to be taxed at champagne tax levels, which is, not to get too boring, is 10 times the amount you would be taxed as a regular cider or wine. It's like... You're playing a completely different ball game at that point. I had no but idea. Wine's very restrictive, unfortunately. Wow. Here's a little more, as you know, oh, I know. open, forgiving. Absolutely. I mean, right, and it depends, you know, obviously what state you're in. I think, I think a lot of the archaic states that used to have these ridiculous beer laws are, are coming out of that. But beer is definitely a lot more forgiving. Know. You know, uh, how much alcohol you can have in it, what ingredients you can put in it. I mean, even the TTB from when I started seven years ago, to what it is now and the list of ingredients that you could now exempt off your label or have to pass through a, um, formula, a formula is so expanded now. It's like everything's on there. It's, it's not even, except they still have not added, um, I think guava right. and mango, right. which I'm just like, yeah, it's crazy. What, what's, can you guys get with like the tropical fruit times? Right. Um, yeah. I got a question for Sarah. You talk about uh, Backpack being a mission-based company. What exactly does that mean, and why is it important? Yeah, I think the mission is really twofold. I think that we never really want to stray away from doing kind of more fruit-based fermentations. I think that really is our wheelhouse. Um, I know Kyle talks a little bit about Hudson North and how we are building out 
really a mission statement around preserving and maintaining the land of New York State. And with that brand, this is actually something that we um, partner with local trail organizations with every state that we end up selling Hudson North in. So we're actually working with the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. I'm looking for like a land trust fund to work with in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Maine. And then we work with the Finger Lakes trails out in Western New York. So really it's, you know, that piece is, you know, involving ourselves in the community, preserving the land because we are an agricultural based product without, you know, without people kind of maintaining, preserving, being stewards um, for this land, um, you know, really who knows what's going to happen. Um, so we've kind of implemented that on the Hudson North side. And then we really love the work that we were doing there. So we actually rolled out something within graph this year called the green planet ciders. Um, Mm -hmm. it's actually a reimagining of our seasonal line. Um, and we're working with us nonprofit um, that not only are based in the U.S. and have um, really great local ties, but then also do have amazing global efforts as well. Um, so we work with One Tree Planted. We work with the Sea Turtle Conservancy out of um, Florida. We work with um, IFAL, the International Fund for Animal Awareness, out of Port Yarmouth, Massachusetts. Um, And what we're doing is basically donating 10% of the sales of that cider back to that nonprofit. Um, Right now, we're kind of capped with how much we can make. So we knew kind of going into this year that it was going to be around $5,000 for each seasonal. We donated that money up front. And basically, we that was important to us because most of the people within our company are millennial, Gen Z, You know, we're younger, we're starting families. (laughs) And I think that the biggest issue that's plaguing the world today is um, climate change. And this is why we wanted to work with environmentally based nonprofits um, that really just had a mission already built in. Um, They had the efforts, they had the resources. Um, We really just needed to vet and find the right people that we wanted to work with that you know, we love the efforts that they had and um, really just wanted to partner with them to just kind of hopefully, you know, make a better world for all of us. Um, So really it's like creating local ties, um, you know, environmentalism, being really conscious about, you know, how our resources are being spent, who we're partnering with, making sure that we're being mindful within that space as well. Um, And then, Kyle hasn't really touched on this, but um, we work with Minard Family Farms. They are a sixth-generation farm orchard based in New York State, and we work with them for all of our apples. Yeah, I I was actually going to get to that, yeah. What you've been saying is all amazing. I mean, that's that's a great effort that you guys have been put forth. I mean, especially donating up front instead of waiting for that revenue to come in. Actually, that's a a big leap and step for, for you guys. Thank you. And that was kind of, you know, we were sitting there and it's like, there's so many promises. So many promises are made that go un, that go unfulfilled. And we did not want to be another one of those kind of brands. We really want long-term change. I think we're in it for the long haul. And we're really just starting to figure out what this really means to us and how we can, um, how we can be a bigger, you know, just be a bigger, you know, mouthpiece for these organizations. And just, I, I really do think that this is the beginning and, you know, the potentials are, are endless. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, that's, it's awesome to hear all that. And thank you, John. And I really wanted to, you know, like you had started to allude to about the, the farm. I mean, it's important for us too, because opening the brewery, we have a lot of fruit based beers mm-hmm. that we do. And, for me, as much as possible that we can do, obviously, we're still limited because we're in Miami, so not everything grows down here. I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, you know, we're relocated to obviously having a load of great tropical fruit, but I think it's whatever we can source locally to the best of our abilities from directly from the farms, like our dragon fruit farm or passion fruit, mangoes, guavas, um, lychees I haven't really gone into because they're way too hard to process. <laughs> but, Beautiful. Um, 
what is your guys' thoughts on sustainability as far as sourcing locally and the quality of those ingredients instead of just buying juice off of somebody else? I mean, you know, like, what is your thoughts on all that? Yeah, 100. I mean, with, with, with apple juice, I mean, one of the reasons why we located in New York State to begin with was, you know, outside of Washington State, it's the second largest apple growing region. Um, in Maryland, like we had to go to PA, like Maryland is known for its apple farms. Um, with Millstone. So being in a region where we could get uh, access to really high quality fruit is super important. And while we do stray a little bit around for our base fruit, one thing that we're really looking forward to is opening up our, um, our tap room, which will allow us to make more agriculture driven products, more in kin with when it, kind of what we're doing with Millstone. So being able to source, you know, grapes out of the Finger Lakes, which we already do for some of our small projects, but, you know, being able to, you know, being able to sell a product that you can sell in a bottle is going to open up a lot of doors for us. So, and, and one of the fun things about using local products is focusing on the seasonality. Like the interesting part is like, they always got to come out like two months minimum after the fruit is harvested. You're kind of out of like peak season. Yes. So I was like, all yeah. right, you know, yeah, and sorry, we're not, you know, why is the strawberry coming out in fall? It's like, well, because we wanted it to age long <laughs> enough to have the characteristics. Right you know, of a fermented strawberry. Um, but that's the one part that I'm really excited to get back into. And one of those things that as you start the process, more and more doors open up as you start to find your local farm resources. Um, you know, we've done some local peaches, we've done some local cherries, and a couple other fruits and local grapes. Um, but I really think expanding and trying to figure out all the cool, fun things that New York grows, kind of the same way that we did in Maryland, um, it's going to be going to be a lot of fun uh, for us. That's awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate your guys' yeah. time. Um, Thank you so much. Yes, and uh, we'll be seeing you guys soon then. Yeah, definitely. See yeah. you soon, Sarah. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank right. you, guys. All right, have a good one, guys. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. The MLB postseason started this week, which puts us in the mood to talk a little baseball and beer, two things that go really well together. Our next guest enjoyed a 12-year career as a Major League Baseball player. In 1996, he won the coveted National League Rookie of the Year Award while playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was part of the 2003 then-Florida Marlins, a team who fired the manager after 38 games and went on to win the World Series. After his playing career ended, he took the plunge into broadcasting. His credits include WGN, longtime home of the Cubs, the MLB Network, and Bally Sports Florida, where he's just completed his fifth season as the color analyst for the Miami Marlins. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Todd Hollinsworth. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing today? Not too bad. I want to say thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. We uh, very much appreciate your time and uh, just being able to come on here and uh, chat baseball and beer with us, of course. Couldn't be happier. It's a good combination, beer and uh, and baseball fans. It, it goes back a long, long time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So how old were you when you caught the baseball bug, and was there a player that inspired you as a kid? Well, that, it's a great question. Um, I caught the baseball bug at a very, very early age, um, but I grew up in a, you know, like I said, I mean, maybe a little different for the kids today, but I grew up in the 80s. And, you know, it, it was really easy to fall in love with baseball. And I think that, you know, with so many things in the world today, like we have oversaturation and see what, when I was a kid growing up, like you just didn't get enough of baseball because it wasn't on TV every day. It wasn't there for you to see. And I grew up just outside of a major city in Philly. And, um, you know, you had Saturday games of the week. So, you know, Little League Baseball was a big deal. Playing in the summertime was fun. I know that um, when when I was little and I started out, that um, I was kind of, I was faster than everybody, and that's kind of where it all started, you know, in t-ball. And what I loved was that every time I hit the ball off the tee, was that I could run to first, and like nobody could ever get me out. I don't think I made it out that year. So that was kind of the progression. That's where it started, but it led to, you know, hitting a ball over the wall, hitting a ball over a really big tree when I was like nine or 10 years old, uh, that had never been done before and kind of starting to get my own attention. Like, Hey, you know, you can kind of be pretty good at this. And of course I loved watching the Philadelphia Phillies. I mean, that was it. That's where it all started. I fell in love with, you know, the game itself. I loved all sports, football, 
baseball, basketball, and uh, baseball was there. Very seasonal sport for me, but when it came around to you know throwing a ball in the air and hitting it, I, I loved it. It was easy to fall in love with for me. So when along the lines did you realize that you had the talent for playing professional baseball? When did that become an option for you? That's a great question. Um, you know, I moved around an awful lot when I was a child. I, I uh, you know, I started out, as I mentioned, I was growing up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, just outside Philly. Um, I, I didn't spend my entire life there. I mean, I spent the majority up until my freshman year of high school there. But then I moved on, ultimately ended up graduating from high school out of Bellevue, Washington. Really? And so I was on the far other side of the country. And I think that, you know, I guess to answer your question directly, it was just a simple fact that whether I was in New Jersey or I was in Montana, who where I stopped on the way out to uh, out to the Northwest, right, or out in Washington, the high schools that I went to, I you know would You're... step into the programs and and became the running back, became the center fielder, became the you know kind of the guy that hit huh. third in the lineup, and you know as I started to realize, okay, I can play this game, and it's just not me dominating my local neighborhood you know, that my game is, is, is a little bit stronger than that. I thought, you know what, I probably have a chance to, to do something with this. And, of course, with that, as I got to my junior year in high school, I started getting, you know, attention from colleges and, uh, you know, Major League Baseball started to pay attention as well. Oh, that's cool, man. I had no idea you, you went to school in Bellevue. I actually, I, my freshman, sophomore, and junior year in high school before I moved back to Miami, I went to a school in, uh, right outside of Spokane, Washington. Right. Yeah, so we played Spokane. Um, I can't remember Spokane High, I believe, is yep. what it was. Oh, that's awesome. So, fast forward to 1991. The Dodgers have drafted you third round straight out of Newport High. What do you remember about that night going to sleep knowing that you were about to become a member of one of baseball's like most storied organizations? Well, it's just this story's going to bum you out. I'm going to let you down a little bit. <laughs> it's not as exciting as you think it would be. <laughs> now, today, and it, it's great because we just had a local kid who uh, who was very dear to me and very dear to, to our family, uh, Andrew Painter, who went to the Philadelphia Phillies. Yep. You know, we had a draft party for him. Uh, when I was getting drafted back in 91, to answer your question, I was <laughs> we didn't have cell phones we didn't have pagers we didn't have any of that stuff so everything was just basically a hard line and basically newspapers and you know just kind of standard communication was was kind of at play so i got drafted and, you know, i was the first pick not the first uh, round pick but i was the first pick of the dodgers that year uh, so i was number 75 overall which uh, again is, is pretty high kind of somewhere between a second and third round pick. I think by definition, I was a sandwich pick between the second and third round. That's still but high. I was the Dodgers first pick. Right. And uh, yeah, very high. And, and uh, you know, the Dodgers, they didn't, you know, I, I was their first pick and I was going to a big franchise. So they were very committed to making sure that I was going to come play for them. And um, the, the thing that's so interesting is that the day that I was drafted, I don't think I found out for like three days. They called me on Thursday. The draft started on Monday. Really? Uh, I, I didn't think I'd been drafted. I thought I was going to college. I thought I was getting ready to go play football and baseball at school. <laughs> the draft oh, wow. had just gone on by, and I wasn't part of it. It wasn't until three days after the draft that I actually got a phone call from the Dodgers and said, oh, hey, by the way, just so you know, we took you with the first pick, our first pick. <laughs> Oh, I, I mean, that's still kind of exciting. I mean, but at least, you know, right. I guess it's a lot different right. back, it, back it was, then until now. It was, it was a little vicious. And I even remember telling Hank, who was my scout, Hank Jones at the time. And I said, Hank, what happened? And he said, well, you know, we, we took a lefty right after you. And we made a phone call to him. And we kind of started negotiating there. And next thing you know, we were really sure we were going to get you because we knew we loved you. And anyway, <laughs> he's just like, I don't know. We just The time seemed to get away from us. And I said, well, that's, that's awful. Maybe <laughs> right. not for you. And we're, it's okay now. But I went two days like with all the anticipation in the world thinking I got a real chance to be drafted. I've been contacted, you know, teams were like, yeah, right. we're taking you in the second round. We're ta- I had a couple of teams that were going to take me in the first round. And I was wow. sitting there thinking, okay. And I don't, you know, of course, I'm just some kid. My parents didn't know anything, you know, as far as like how this went. Uh, thought the draft had come and gone and I wasn't part of it, that I'd just been overlooked and that college was going to be on my radar. And then I think I want to say it was probably Thursday afternoon. I got a phone call from the Dodgers, Hank Jones. He's like, hey, listen, we took you with the first pick. So it was it was some subdued, uh, you know, excitement. I was like really excited, but kind of like at the same time that I 
kind of had gone through a little bit of a transition. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess probably downplayed it a little bit. That, I mean, yeah, I guess they left you hanging for way too long. <laughs> kind of killed all the anticipation. But, I mean, right. at least the Dodgers knew, you know, what you were doing and what you were capable of when they drafted you. Well, and I, and I appreciated that. And then they, you know, they, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you guys a great story about Hank. Hank was uh, the scout of the year. So when I ended up winning the rookie of the year in 1996 for the National League, for the Dodgers. Right, yeah, because you know, uh, you, you did spend four years in the minors. And then in 96, you won National League right. rookie of the year. But absolutely I, I, right. So, but when I got so when I got to that stage, Hank, they brought Hank back in because they had named him uh, Scout of the Year, and uh, you know, so he was winning an award in 1996, and they presented it with him, and I, you know, helped present the, him with the reward uh, award on the field. And Hank was was like, you know, this guy was an easy pick. We drafted him off the football field, <laughs> so they just knew that I was, you know, I was a football player at heart, but I loved baseball. I was raw, but I wanted to learn. Right. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a kid who had played so much baseball that I was oversaturated with it. I was still inspired by the game. I still right. had a lot to learn, and uh, I was still very excited, even at the age of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, in my That's minor crazy. league years. Very, very excited to, uh, you know, continue to learn and get better. Incredibly, you, right. you were actually the fifth consecutive Dodger to win that award. I'm sure that right. it, it had to be about a, some pressure. Right. I mean, it had to be a, an awesome, proud moment in your baseball career up to that point. But I've also wondered about your Rookie of the Year winner in every sport. I mean, does, does it raise the level of expectations too high after that or add too much pressure after that? Uh, that's a very fair question. Uh, and I think the truthful answer is it probably does. I think... Um, you know, there, there's some element of satisfaction knowing that you were raised as a Dodger and that you won the award because, you know, that's an organization that certainly prided itself on raising kids, you know, you know, the right way and getting them to the big leagues and winning that award. It's part of their history. It's part of their storied, you know, museum. If you were to go to Dodger Stadium, they have a museum kind of a underneath, uh, you know, where, you know, the VIP seats are and, and behind it, they have, you know, basically Dodger history down there. And it yep. is a very, very important part of their history. Uh, and I'm very proud to be part of that history. It uh, it is something that certainly carried some weight. It's it's an amazing story in and of itself. How I won the award, I'll give it, I'll give you guys the story because nobody else really knows this story. Um, and I, I don't think that you know an organization is going to do five in a row again anytime soon. You realize how you know almost difficult that is. Oh yeah. Um, yep. But I'll give you I'll give you guys a quick story because it is a good one. I actually made it to the big leagues in 1995. And, of course, we were coming off a strike at the time. And in 1995, the Los Angeles Dodgers had brought in a, a player from Japan, the Tornado, Hideo Nomo. Oh, and I, yes. both being rookies, were on the team that year. Well, that year was very disconnected for me. I had broken my thumb. I had hurt my hand. I, had, I mean, I had uh, broken a bone in my hand, broken the thumb. Anyway, missed a whole bunch of time. Hideo Nomo went on and went, ended up winning the Rookie of the Year award over Chipper Jones, Hall of Famer right. Chipper Jones, right? Um, and and beat him out for the Rookie of the Year award that year. Now, if you were to just take my numbers from '96 and compare it to Chipper's, you know, yeah, they, they kind of measure up nicely. But I, I mean, let's be honest, he would have <laughs> probably won the award. I scored maybe a few more runs than he did, but he drove in way more runs, hit more home runs. We had similar batting averages and stuff like that, but. All in all, he was going to beat me. But this is the point. The point is, is that Hideo ends up winning the award uh, for number four for the Dodgers. So there's now been four in a row. Well, I ended up moving into the 1996 season with my rookie status intact. Oh, wow. Because I missed so much time with hand surgery and a broken thumb the year before, even though I was in Los Angeles as a Dodger, I got to be a rookie again in 1996. And I went on and won the award. Of course, my competition was not Hideo Nomo, Hideo Nomo or Chipper Jones. Right. And I was able to the, win the award a little bit more handily, thus being the fifth in a row. So, I mean, it's, you know, I just think how sometimes God, you know, things happen and, you know, you look and you say back, you look at back over it and you're saying to yourself, wow, that, you know, how did that even happen? Those circumstances, if you don't add them together, that's pretty amazing. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield. And we're talking to Todd Hollingsworth. So, Along this career, you have played for some Hall of Fame managers. You played for late Tommy Lasorda, 
and you played for Bobby Cox. What did you learn about leadership from playing from under those guys, those legends? Uh, that's, a, you know, that's a great question. Um, I learned, and I, I really wish that I could have played for Tommy longer. Tommy was my first uh, manager. I love playing for Tommy. Tommy brought out the best in me, whether I liked it or not. And that's really what he was good at. He was a, a motivator. He was good at motivating. Um, I, I'm not sure everybody would necessarily agree with the, the tools of motivation, but they worked. <laughs> I mean, that's the bottom line. And, uh, you know, performance mattered. And he was able to do that at a very high level. Now, I only got to play for him for a couple of years because he had a slight heart attack uh, at the end of his managerial career and ultimately ended up stepping away from the game at that at point in time. So I got to play for him a couple of years, but I love him dearly, loved him to the very end. Uh, and certainly he impacted my career more than really just about anybody else I played for. Uh, Bobby, certainly all the respect in the world, you know, for Bobby Cox. Now I didn't play for Bobby too long, uh, but I certainly understood uh, exactly what the Atlanta Braves were all about, how loyal he was to the organization, how much that mattered, how loyal he was to his players uh, how he wanted to create an environment where the players could ultimately manage themselves. And it was his responsibility to, you know, to make that happen. But of course that comes from, you know, drafting and, and, and bringing in quality people around you. And the Braves have always done that. Certainly, you know, 13 division championships in a row, which was at the time I was there as well, just a small part of it. Uh, you know, Bobby's level of expectations were there. He would never fly off the handle. He expected more. And if the job wasn't getting done, you know, the lineup would look a little different the next day. But he wasn't the type of manager that would, you know, uh, you know, hang it over your head. He was, you know, he would deal with, he, he would deal with you as a man and, and certainly expected the most from you. Uh, and I think me, along with probably thousands of other, you know, ballplayers who have played for the Atlanta Braves over, the, over their careers, have wonder, wonderful things to say uh, of Bobby Cox and certainly the the job he has done. Yeah, I mean that that must be something happened played under uh, under Tommy. I remember growing up watching him and and everything, and Bobby as well. Just watching both of those storied franchises and everything. So beer is such a big part of baseball, from the fans in the stands to the players in the clubhouse after a game. Why do you think that beer and baseball are such a perfect fit? Well, it's a social drink, and baseball is a very social game. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, baseball games would break out, you know, anywhere and everywhere in the neighborhoods I lived in, places I, uh, you know, played. You know, you'd go to parks, you'd see games just being played, and I think that's where baseball just takes us back to over 100 years of, you know, history of, you know, socializing. Uh, you know, we used to think, and we still talk about it all the time, and I don't know if it's as relevant today as it used to be back in the day, you know, knowing and having such a big – you know, part to play in the city of Chicago and with the Chicago Cubs, you know, you talk about old style beer and, you know, guys sitting around and talking the game and talking stats and talking plays, talking how the game could have gone different. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Baseball is the best, absolute best hindsight sport where we go back and say, well, if he did this, this would have happened. Or if this (laughs) manager did that, this would have happened. And it, you know, it makes for great conversation. And so, you know, you think back in the day, you know, we weren't all sitting around drinking Mai Tais, no. you know, doing this. We were sitting around drinking beer doing this. Yep. We were sitting around, you know, uh, tapping, you know, right off the tap, you know, you know, get your buddies around to beers, you know, before a game, after a game and sit around and talk baseball. And I think that is really where the, you know, the relationship between, you know, beer and, 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 and Major League Baseball has been, and it still is today. It's like going to the ball game. You go there to relax. It's not, you know, you're not there for an intense game of, you know, uh, baseball, you know, so, you no, know no. focus in, lock it down. You know, that's not how it's going. <laughs> it's, you know, it's very casual. And, you know, the idea is to enjoy yourself, to enjoy your friends, to enjoy your family, to enjoy your wife, you know, have uh, have a couple of pops and uh, enjoy the game of baseball. But I do, I do think back to those days that, that, that were around in the, at least for me, in the, you know, growing up in the 70s, 80s, even early 90s, where, you know, you'd go to those sports bars during a baseball game and just see people sitting around having some beers and talking baseball. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's still the same nowadays. Obviously, nowadays there's an injection of craft beer in almost every single major league ballpark, too, which is great right. for us. You know? But, I mean, right. I, I, I absolutely agree with everything you stated about it being a social sport and also a social event as far as gathering around, talking about the game afterwards, during the game, you know, everything. So it's definitely, I, they go hand in hand very, very well. 
so tonight the Dodgers, your former team, is in an unenviable position facing Adam Wainwright and the Cardinals in a winner-take-all wild-card game. The Dodgers have won 106 games this season, more than any other team in baseball except for one, the Giants, who won 107. Right. If the Dodgers lose tonight, does MLB do away with these wild-card games? What do you think? Uh, great question. I, I, I do believe that it will be up for negotiations because you generally don't want to see, you know, your worst teams. I mean, the whole idea is that let's remember this because, and again, this is validating your question, thus making it a great question in my mind. Major League Baseball is based on 162 games. And we've got there for a reason. 162 is based on the teams that are the best teams ultimately went out. I think we saw last year during the COVID shortened season that certain teams, much like the Marlins, can take full advantage of a 60-game schedule and find themselves in an enviable position. And what we know that 60 games, that's not even, that's just barely a third of a, a, a true major league season. What ultimately happens in 162 games, the cream rises to the top. The best pitching, the best teams, those who are the best will win out over the long, longer periods of time. And that was always the idea behind the sport of baseball. It was never to have this sense of, well, we can catch a flyer. Or the next thing you know, there might be some team that could just come, come out of nowhere and kind of mess everything up. Baseball wasn't really meant to be, you know, appreciated that way. We felt right. like, yeah, any team can win any day. Right. But when you look at the length of a season, the best teams have the best records at the end. And here we are in game number one with a bunch of game number sevens, because you know what I'm talking about, yep. right? This is yep. a game number seven. Somebody's going yep. home today. I mean, exactly. this is crazy. Yep. But just like the Yankees got knocked out, somebody's going to go home and say to themselves, what just happened? This team got knocked out. It's gonna, And here's the thing. It's a tragic story for either one of them. Because yes. the St. Louis Cardinals have been the best team in baseball, most exciting team in baseball in the second half. The Dodgers have been one of the best teams in baseball all season long, and somebody's going home. That's crazy. So to answer your question, I think that, yes, things have to probably change so that this goes away a little bit. I, I I love the idea of the this you know game seven atmosphere that's happening right now, kind of like we saw with the Yankees and the Red Sox. Right. But I feel I feel like there's a more creative way we can do that using teams that are you know maybe in that eighth, ninth, tenth position in in the league or whatever in, you know in baseball, so that it's teams that are good but not great and they're fighting for their lives we like that dynamic i, I like love that. the game seven who doesn't right? i love that yeah, i don't that... want to just eliminate it but i do have a problem with like the best team in baseball being essentially eliminated potentially tonight and i'll tell you what if you were to ask me my opinion watch out for the cardinals watch oh out for the cardinals oh they're boy. the hottest team in baseball right now and so there's a very good chance that the dodgers lose tonight and go home wow so uh, i'm gonna t- I, I got two questions for you one of them first up Who's your pick to win the World Series? Oh, who is my pick to win the World Series? Well, I have a hard time really rooting against the Rays. I think that the Rays, this could very well be their year. They're Ooh. they're well coached. They are uh, a team that has just continued to dominate the American League despite what everybody says, um, they have a sneaky good offense that people just, I think that Nelson Cruz is one of the best acquisitions that, you know, really nobody's talking about. Um, I, I, if, if I'm betting, I, I would be betting race. I, I'm, okay. I'm not betting against Tampa right now. I, okay. I have a hard time betting against that city. <laughs> yeah. If they had a basketball the team, we'd, on, we, I think we'd be in trouble. On fire. I mean, you want to you want to go against Tampa right no, now with no, the hockey no. and there, you know everything else is going on? No, no. I, I'm, I'm I'm all in on Tampa right I, now. I'm just glad they don't have a basketball team as well. <laughs> right, that's that that's the point. Uh, they would probably be in first place. Exactly. Well, last question here. There, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about baseball's popularity and the U.S. attendance, television viewership, and and little league participation have been declining for a few years. But it seems that whenever the MLB tries to make a change, like seven-inning doubleheader games or man-on-second during extra innings, the purists scream that they're, you know, they're ruining the sport. Is, is baseball in need of fresh ideas to stay relevant in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. Baseball is 100% in need of fresh ideas and relevancy moving forward. Uh, I, I love the history of the game, but I know that everything that we continue to look at as far as professional sports are concerned, 
things have got to be able to, you know, become better. Um, not just in always changing the rules or changing the, you know, the way that this works, but just changing the viewership of the game. I mean, let's be honest. Let's just give you a great example. I thought the City Connect uniforms were absolutely a fantastic idea. They became very popular, and they certainly were fresh. Uh, But, again, that's a fresh idea. The Marlins did it. They had City Connect jerseys this year that were red. It was uh, in, in, you know, Cuban heritage. I thought that there was a great connection there. Cities around Major League Baseball did this as well. The Cubs did it. I believe the Giants did it. A few other teams, I think Boston did it as well. I think that these uniforms turned out well, and I think that they were a lot of fun. Yes, I do think that that Major League Baseball, along with all the other sports, need to continue to hire people with fresh ideas, um, great ideas to make the game great. I'm not saying change the game. I'm saying make the game great. So to your point about you know the, the rule changes, I do get a little hesitant there, but there, there's got to be a way because this, this has been my one argument all along with Major League Baseball, and this is through my playing career and, and, and through my years. Major League Baseball is the only sport that you can go to, take your family, and you say, I have no idea how long we're going to be there. You go to a basketball game, it's bound by time. You go to a hockey game, it's right. bound by time. Yep. You go to a football game, any game, any other professional sport is bound by time. We were, they were talking about it last night. I'd completely forgotten about it. You know, the, the, the Boston Red Sox and the Yankees played a seven-hour postseason game one time. Right. Seven yeah, I hours. remember that. I remember that was crazy. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now, granted, once in a million, you know, once in a while, that's fantastic. But the average time of our games is going through the roof. I think that there's a, there's a stale element to our game with walks, strikeouts, and homers. Uh, yeah, we love the homers. Yep. But we don't like the other two. I'm not even sure most people love walks anymore because there's just nothing. There's no action. It doesn't right. lead to, you know. Uh, you know, back in the day, we used to say, okay, don't walk Ricky Henderson because he'll steal second and steal third. But I, I'm not even sure that exists anymore. Most guys don't run. That's so, true. you know, we're in a position where, yeah, I think that there's some subtlety to the game to freshen it up, to spice it up, to make it more exciting, to make their better energy in the stands, in the field. I, I, I would like to see that, and I'd love to see those. You know, just even having the conversation really does help build ideas. But I do agree that change is very important to, to professional sports. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Todd. I, it's been an honor to, to talk to you, and thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll see if the, uh, if the Rays take it all this year or not. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Uh, absolutely enjoyed being with you guys. I wish we were all sitting around having a couple of suds ourselves since we were, all, we were talking baseball the whole time. Absolutely. Which is the best way to do it. But I uh, <laughs> love you guys. Great program. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much, Todd. Bye. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Kyle Scherer, Sarah Scherer, and Todd Hollinsworth, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on the SiriusXM app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.